platform in me. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajeem. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Qul a'udhu bi rabbin nas, malikin nas, ilahin nas, min sharril waswasil khannas, الذي يوسوس في صدور الناس من الجنة والناس بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So uh, for the past couple of weeks we've been um, going over Surah Al-Nas chapter 114 of the Qur'an, the last surah of the Qur'an. And last week we covered in some detail some of the, like the more general meaning of the surah um, and how it relates, for example, to surah Falaq and surah Ikhlas and surah Fatiha and how the beginning of the Qur'an, as some scholars of Tafsir mentioned, how the beginning of the Qur'an and the ending of the Qur'an kind of like merge together and they complement one another and so on and so forth. So we went and covered that in some detail last week. Inshallah ta'ala, this week we're going to be going over a uh, more or less a word-for-word tafsir of Surah Al-Nas. And I just want to mention um, that we're not, like I, the whole point of this tafsir isn't to do a word-for-word tafsir. So going forwards, we're not necessarily going to do a word-for-word tafsir of the Qur'an. We're going to do it verse by verse, but not necessarily word-for-word. But there are two things that we are going to, inshallah, focus on in our tafsir. Um, number one is uh, where there are patterns, or if you like, for example, repetition in the Quran. So a concept or a theme that is repeated often and over again in the Quran, that's something that we're going to highlight and speak about in more detail. So, for example, in Surah An-Nas, you know, like the fact that there are, um, you know, a number of surahs that begin with the word "qul," right? Say. Or, for example, the fact that there are verses of the Qur'an that focus on this concept of seeking refuge and protection in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's a concept that is repeated over again in the Qur'an. And the reason why we're going to focus on that is because that is from the methodology or one of the methodologies of tafsir and from some of the scholars of tafsir that they make tafsir of the Qur'an with the Qur'an. And so what it allows you to appreciate is that this isn't one unique incident in the Qur'an or one unique verse in the Qur'an but it's something which is repeated over and over again throughout the Qur'an Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this context right or mentions this subject or for example Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this particular word in this particular way over and over again in the Qur'an so that's something that we're going to highlight the other thing that we're going to highlight or the second thing that inshallah we will highlight in terms of a word for word tafsir of the Qur'an is what is known as gharibul Qur'an right? unfamiliar words in the Qur'an so the Qur'an as we know is in Arabic right? but just because it's in Arabic doesn't mean that all of the Arabic that is in the Qur'an is widely and easily understood by Arabs and non-Arabs alike so even people who speak Arabic Arabic is their mother tongue, it's their language it's the language that they're proficient with even they will struggle with certain terms and words of the Qur'an because it's not something which they are easily able to understand. The Qur'an is of a higher level of eloquence and it is a greater form of Arabic than what the people speak, especially today. 
even in the time of the companions, there were certain terminologies, and I think we, I think I don't remember now, but I think we pointed, gave a couple of examples of this, where some of the companions struggled with some of the words in the Quran. And they were Arabs, and they were from the most eloquent of Arabs. The companions were people who were well-versed and proficient in Arabic eloquence. But they struggled and they found it difficult to understand certain words because it wasn't something that was commonly and uh, frequently spoken of in Arabic language. Right? It's not a common term that people used in day-to-day conversation. Or, for example, they want to know the nuanced meaning of the word. Right? And we gave the example, I think, if I remember correctly, between khaliq and fatir. Right? Did we mention that? Yeah. Anyone have any recollection of that? Am I just imagining stuff? All right. So, for example, it's reported that Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhuma, he went to some of the Bedouin Arabs, right? because as we know, one of the common practices in that time was when you have a child of three, four, five years old, what do, they, what do you do with them? You send them off into the desert for a couple of years, right? As the Prophet wasallam did at a young age, he went to Halima Sa'diyya. And the reason was because the Arabs of the desert, the Bedouins, have better Arabic language, they don't mix with people, they don't have foreigners and visitors coming in, their language doesn't become diluted, they don't start to pick up slang terms and so on. The Arabic is the Arabic that is pure and pristine, right? And the Arabs of the Bedouins or the Bedouin Arabs of the desert were known for their eloquence to the extent that some of them would come and just from the top of their head they would recite poetry. So in Sukkah Ukav and these types of festivals that the Arabs had in Jahiliya, the Arab Bedouin would come from the desert and he would speak in poetry from the top of his head. So I'm not speaking about someone who's there, you know, writing it down and, you know, like putting this stuff together over weeks and months and then editing and amending and changing. Just from the top of their head, they would come and they would spout poetry. So the Arabs were known for this. And plus, obviously, there were other benefits, you know, the food that they have, the environment, the air is cleaner and so on. So the Arabs used to do this. They would send their children to these areas. So Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhum, I wanted to know the difference between two descriptions that Allah Azza wa gives himself in the Quran. One is Khaliq and one is Fatir. Khaliq and Fatir, both of them kind of mean the same thing. They both refer to creation, the aspect of creation. But there is a subtle difference between the two and that is the difference that Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu wanted to understand. Why does Allah Azza wa sometimes call himself Khaliq and sometimes call himself Fatir? Both of them are creation, creator. But what is the difference? So the Bedouin Arabs, and he didn't say to them, you know, what is the tafsir of the Quran? Because that's not the question. The question was, in Arabic language, in our use of the Arabic language, in which context do we use khaliq and in which context do we use fadil? How do you understand it? So he said to him, the Bedouin said to him, fadil is the one who creates from nothing. He creates a model from nothing. No pre-existing model exists. It's an invention. It's completely new. That is Fatir, right? The one who originates, right? He's the original master of design. He's the one who brings. So, for example, Adam salam Before him, there's no other human, right? There's nothing similar. He is the first of his type, his kind. And then Khaliq is the one who replicates creation. So Fatir is the original design. The Creator, Allah Azza wa Jal, is Fatir. And then from Adam alayhi salam, all of his children, all of his progeny are in his image, right? In his similar type of design. And that is Khaliq. And that is the difference between the two. 
So to say, you know, both of them mean creator is, you know, technically correct. But to understand the nuanced difference between the two, the subtle difference gives you an enhanced understanding of the Quran, right? Enhanced understanding of the tafsir of the Quran. You have a question? Father. Can someone have the name Father? I don't. I don't know if it's a common name. There are certain names of Allah Azza wa Jal that shouldn't be given to others. Yeah, like Rahman. And I, I don't know. I think Father may be one of them, but I don't know. So, so what I was saying. So this is the second thing that we're going to focus on, right? Gharib al Quran, right? Gharib al Quran, which means unfamiliar words, peculiar words that you find in the Quran, meaning that they're unfamiliar, right? They're not something which you commonly know. Like in Surah Nas, Al-Wiswas, Al-Waswas, Al-Khannas, right? These aren't terms that the Arabs use even today in everyday speech, right? It's not something which people go around speaking about. Falak, right? Ghasiq, Ida Waqab, right? These aren't the terms that are generally used by Arabs in their day-to-day speech, right? When Allah Azza wa for example, says, Wal-Adiyati Dabha, right? And there are many such terms in the Qur'an, and there is an actual science of Qur'an called the science of Gharib al-Qur'an, and scholars wrote books on this topic and so on and so forth, and there's books of tafsir that just focus on this issue. So those two things are, inshallah, we're going to kind of like point them out, inshallah, and highlight them. But for Surah Nas, we're kind of going to like do a, a bit of a word-for-word tafsir, but the point was that that's not going to be the norm, all right? Otherwise, you know, this is going to take even longer than it's already going to take, so... Um, so that's inshallah the way that we're going to be approaching uh, the tafsir. So Surah Nas, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins in the first verse with a command, right? Say I seek refuge and protection in the Lord of mankind, right? And Allah Azza wa begins with the word Qul. Now the word Qul is a command, right? And it means it's an order, a command, and it means say, right? Say. This command is given many times in the Quran. So throughout the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this. Right? Right? Say to them, meaning say, O Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that if all of the humans and all of the jinn were to unite and gather, in order to bring something similar to this Quran, they would be unable to do so, even if they were to help and assist one another, right? They were people who are helping and assisting one another. That's a command, right? The Prophet ﷺ is told, say, right? Say to them, bring a surah similar to the Qur'an, a surah similar from the surahs of the Qur'an. Say to them, bring ten surahs similar to the surahs of the Qur'an. So often, over and over again in the Qur'an, you find this command that Allah Azza wa gives to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to say. Right? It's a command, say, and then the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is told what to say. Right? And that's to highlight the importance of the issue, is to highlight emphasis and so on. And we'll go over some of those uh, points, uh, inshallah, in, in a couple of minutes. There are five surahs in the Qur'an that also begin with this command. So that's a command that you find often in the Qur'an, right? in verses in the Qur'an, throughout the Qur'an, dispersed throughout the Qur'an, Allah Azza wa gives the command and the order, قُلْ Say. But then there are five surahs of the Qur'an that begin with قُلْ with the command to say. Right? What are those five surahs? Four are very easy. And he just gave you probably the hardest one. So surah jinn, 
Kill someone else a chance for him. Surah Kafirun, Falak Nas and the easiest one. Ikhlas, right? So Surah Jin, Surah Kafirun, Surah Ikhlas, Surah Falak, and Surah Nas, right? Four of them are very easy because they're together at the end of the Quran. And then you have Surah Jin, right? And all of those five surahs begin in the same way. And that's also, by the way, a very interesting way when you do contemplation of the Qur'an and you want to look at some of the deeper meanings of the Qur'an, you look at different surahs of the Qur'an that begin in the same way. Right? So for example, there's a number of surahs that begin with Alhamdulillah, right? praise is due to Allah, like Fatiha, like Na'am, like Fatir, Sabah, and so on. And then there are surahs that may begin with, um, you know, Ya Ayyuhan Nabi, right? O Prophet, right? or surahs that begin with Tabarak, Blessed is Allah, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So anyway, that's like a side point. But there are five surahs of the Quran that begin with the command to say, right, to speak. So some of the scholars said that one of the, the benefits and wisdoms behind this command is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying to the Prophet وسلم, that these words that you're going to be give, given, right, the command to say, are extremely important. Right? So, and this is specifically now when Qul comes at the beginning of the surah. Right? That these words that you're going to be given, or this passage that you're going to be given, it is something which is extremely important. Right? And so it's to highlight the importance of what's about to come. And if you look at those surahs, Surah Nas, Falaq, Ikhlas, Kafirun, Jinn, they speak about Allah's Tawheed. Right, they speak about worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right, so even Surah Jinn, which is the surah of how the jinn are relating or relating to us, you know, their their da'wah and how they heard about the Quran and, and you know the way that they have received or people or their species has received the revelation and the message of Islam and so on, it is still confined to the issue of Tawheed, right? From amongst us there's believers and there's disbelievers. From amongst us are those who do good and those who do evil. Right? And this is what we've learned and so on and so forth. So all of it comes back down to the central issue and theme of Tawheed and worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's number one. One of the first benefits of Qul say is that Allah Azza wa is saying to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa these are extremely important words. Not only are they important, but they are words that you should recite often. So with the exception of Surah Jinn, the other four surahs are surahs and passages that the Prophet ﷺ would recite often, right? We've covered Surah Falaq al-Nas, you know, over and over again, how many times it's emphasized, repeated, you know, we're told, read it in the morning, read it in the evening, reading after salah, all of those issues, right? Concerning the Surah Falaq al-Nas, the Ma'awidhatin. And then Surah Ikhlas, right, is another surah, right? It's equal to a third of the Qur'an. The Prophet ﷺ would love to recite it. And there's the hadith of the companion who after every, in every raka'ah, after he would recite what he wanted of the Qur'an, he would finish with Surah Ikhlas. And when he was asked by the Prophet ﷺ, why? Why do you do this? He said, because it speaks about my Lord Allah and I love to recite it. And so he was told by the Prophet ﷺ, know that Allah also loves you. Right? He loved to be reminded of Allah, read about Allah. And so Allah loves him because of this as well. And Surah Kafirun is likewise a surah. And those two surahs, Kafirun and Ikhlas, were surahs that the Prophet would often recite together. Right? It's again something which is commonly done. A number of hadith that say, for example, that in the two raqahs of Fajr, which two surahs would the Prophet commonly read? Kafirun and Ikhlas. Right? 
And so there's surahs that the Prophet ﷺ is told to repeat and he's told to say over and over again. And there's a number of narrations in, uh, for example, the Mustadrak of Imam Hakim and Imam Bukhari mentions it also in his Sahih and so on. On Ubay ibn Ka'ab, Ubay ibn Ka'ab is one of the senior companions of Quran, right? He's one of the Amongst the companions, there were companions who are known for hadith, companions known for fiqh, companions known for jihad, companions known for different issues. When it comes to the Qur'an, and in particular the recitation of the Qur'an, from amongst the foremost senior companions was this companion Ubay ibn Ka'ab radiyallahu And Ubay ibn Ka'ab is from the Ansar, right, from the companions of Medina. And in the time of, you know, like Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman, Ubay ibn Ka'ab radiyallahu an had a status. Right? He was someone that was well respected by the companions. To the extent that there's a story of, um, in the time of Umar radiyallahu an, right, when Umar is the Khalifa, uh, someone comes to Medina to visit. Right? He's, he's a visitor, he's not from Medina, and he comes to the city of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam as a visitor, comes to Medina. And he comes towards, close to Salat time. So he comes into the masjid, and the masjid is empty, right? This is the masjid al-Nabawi, empty, right? It's not like today, you'll never get empty. But he comes in, and there's not really anyone there. So he decides to go to the front row, and if you're in an empty masjid, and you're the first one there, and especially if it's something like masjid al-Nabawi, where are you going to sit? You're going to sit right behind the imam, right? So he comes in to the front row, and he sits right behind the imam. The adhan goes, people start coming into the masjid slowly, slowly, and then Umar radiallahu anhu hears the adhan given and Umar comes into the masjid right, to lead the salah. And as the iqamah is finishing and Umar is ready to lead the salah, right, Allahu Akbar is about to start, this companion or this man, this visitor, he feels someone behind him, grab him by the shoulders, remove him from the front row, take his place and start the salah. Right? So, you know, you can imagine, right? You're stuck in the middle of nowhere, no man's land, right? Can't be in the front row, can't be in the second row. So he, he kind of like finds a space and he, and he prays. After the salah, he's upset though, right? I mean, I've been here, I was the first one here. I'm early, this was my place. And literally just before the imam says, Allahu Akbar, some guy just pulls me out the way, right? And, and he takes my place and he leads the salah, uh, reads in the salah. So then he's, he's upset. So after the salah, he says out loud, Right? He says, who do you think you are? Right? What did you just do? You just came and you moved me out the way. Who do you think you are? So Umar radiallahu an spoke instead of this man. And he said to him, woe to you. Right? And that's like a common you know, like phrase that the Arabs used to have. Right? Woe to you. Woe to you. Do you not know who this is? This is Amir al-Mu'mineen, the leader of the Muslims, Ubay ibn Ka'ab radiyallahu anhu. Right? So this companion was Ubay ibn Ka'ab who pulled him out the room. And then Umar radiyallahu anhu said, And our Prophet told us sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, لِيَلْيَنِي مِنْكُمْ أُلُنُّهَا وَلَحْلَامِ Let those who stand directly behind me be from amongst the people of knowledge and Qur'an. People of understanding. Right? Because that's who should stand behind the Imam. So today, for example, if you go to Mecca or Medina, Masjid al-Haram, Masjid al-Nabawi, even if you're the first one in the masjid, you know, like to say theoretically, and there's no one else there, you still can't sit behind the imam. Because what do they have behind the imam? Right? You've all seen it on TV. They have this special colored rug. Right? And that's not for you. You're like, that's good, right? I'm going to play on that one. It's not for you. It's there because it's reserved. And it's reserved because those people who will come out with the imam and stand behind him are scholars of Quran, huffaz, 
you know, people who, for example, if the man makes a mistake, you know, you don't, and I've seen this, by the way, you don't have someone at the back of Masjid al-Haram, like the third floor up on the roof, correcting him, right? Like he's thinking he's going to hear me, right? I've, I've, have you come, I've come across that. Someone on the roof correcting the imam and he's made a mistake. So they have people for that. And then also, and probably more importantly, if the imam, for example, breaks his wudu, right? Or, you know, like he has to leave the salah or something happens, right? You know, most of us, if we're standing behind them, we wouldn't have a clue what to do. We just like freeze, right? We're like, okay, now what? So the whole point is that you have people there that know what to do, right? So even in the story of Umar radiallahu anhu, when he's assassinated and he's in salah, right? He's praying fajr. Who comes and stands in his place? Abdurrahman ibn Awf radiallahu Because he's standing directly behind him. Right? It's that caliber of person that you want, that if there's an issue, and you know, that's like, it's like kind of like a sunnah that's been lost in some ways. So that's something which the companions used to have. Right? Who stands behind me directly? People of knowledge, people of, you know, who are understanding, people of fiqh, people who know what to do in the salah, they know the rulings of salah and so on. So this is what, and Umar radiallahu an called him Amirul Mu'mineen. Right? Who's Amirul Mu'mineen? Umar is Amir al-Mu'mineen, right? That's his title. He is the leader of the Muslims. But Umar would give this title to certain companions because of their status and their knowledge and their virtue. So Ubay ibn Ka'ab radiallahu anhu, because of his knowledge of the Qur'an, because of his understanding of the Qur'an, he was given that, uh, you know, that, uh, that title of Amir al-Mu'mineen. The point here being is... There are narrations in the Mustadrak of Imam Hakim, in Al-Bukhari and others that Ubay ibn Ka'ab and some of them also um, are narrated by Ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu an that the, the, that the Prophet said about these surahs that it was said to me say right, it was said to me meaning Allah said to me say so I said and now I am saying to you say so you should also say meaning what? meaning that when this command is given in the Quran Say, who is it addressing primarily or first at first point? The Prophet right? Because the Quran is being revealed to him. Jibreel is coming with the Quran and he's giving him the command that Allah gives to him. It was said to me, say, so I said. Right? Allah said, Qul, so I said, Qul. Right? And I said, what, what is after that? And now I say to you, meaning my ummah, right? So then by extension, the command also covers all of us. So when Allah commands the Prophet to say, it is a command for us to say as well. Right? So now I say to you, and you should also say. So from the benefits of, um, of having this statement, قُلْ, right, this command and order of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to say, uh, I think we mentioned the first one, and that is that it shows importance. Right? That these words that are about to come are words that are important. You should memorize them, you should know them, you should say them. Right. Number two, that you should believe in them. So what Allah is commanding us to say is something that is important, that requires us to affirm, requires us to believe, requires us to apply. So in relation to Surah Nas, what is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanding us to do? To seek refuge and protection from shaitan, right? From the harm of shaitan, the danger of shaitan. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if Allah is saying this is serious, right? it's important, don't neglect this. Don't just pass it by. Take this on board. Right? Memorize this, understand this, apply it, and so on. Number three, it is a method of teaching. Right? It is a method of teaching. It's like you know, when we say to our kids, repeat after me. Right? 
for those of you that have children, right? This is something you, you commonly say. Right? Repeat after me, right? Say after me. Yeah? And one of the reasons, and in school they do the same thing, right? Repeat after me, say after me, because it is a method of teaching. Because Surah Nas and Surah Falaqa, in essence, when you make isti'adha, when you seek Allah's protection, what is it a form of? It's a form of dua. Right? It's a form of supplication, it's an invocation, it's asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for something. Right? And so therefore when you're commanded to say, to repeat after someone, it's because it's something that you have to memorize and something that you need to know. And finally number four, because what is being mentioned is a danger that we need to be aware of. Something that we need to safeguard ourselves from. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala highlights it. Right? Because some of the scholars of tafsir, they ask a question, why doesn't Allah begin the surah without the command? Why doesn't he just say, seek refuge? Instead of saying, say, I seek refuge, why doesn't Allah just say, ta'awwadu? Seek refuge in Allah from shaitan, right? Or seek refuge in the Lord of mankind. Why say, say, and then personalize it? Say, I. Right? Say, I seek refuge. Why not just give the command? Because both are commands. If I was to say to you, say, or I was to say oh, to all of you, seek refuge, without the word say, both of them kind of like mean the same thing. Why does Allah give the command say, and then number two, he makes it in the first person? Right? And there are two reasons. Number one, because the command to say makes us pay attention. Right? Draws attention. If you were just to say, you know, seek refuge, do, don't, pray, eat, whatever, it's not as eloquent, it's not as strong, it's not as firm as when you give that command say. Right? It's almost as if you're going to pay attention. Even if you weren't paying attention, now you're going to pay attention. Right? It's like Allah is saying, listen, pay attention, say. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you what to say. And then the second reason is because when Allah puts it into the first person, you personalize the Qur'an. And one of the things that we're taught in the Qur'an in terms of understanding and contemplation and tadabbur and something which the Prophet ﷺ would often do with the Qur'an is he would personalize the message of the Qur'an. Why? Because if I was to say, seek refuge, you know like if you have a group of people and you say to them, take out your phones. Right? If I was to say to you now, take out your phone. Right? None of you listened to me. None of you took out your phone. Right? I gave a command, I asked you all to do something and no one listened. Right? Or sometimes you say to everyone, stand up. Right? And five people will stand up. Right? Or you say to everyone, sit down, and three people sit down. Or you say to everyone, write this down. Right? And you speak into a group of 30, 40 people, and what happens? Like five people write it down. Because when you give a generic command, what do we think? We think, oh, he means that guy over there, right? Or he means someone else. Or he's not talking about me. Or, you know, like, if other people are doing it, that's okay, that's enough. Right? That's what we often think. Right? So you know like when the imam stands up on Jummah khutbah and he's saying, you know, like we all need money from the masjid, give charity. And you see like, mashallah, 10 people going to the box and putting some money in there. And like, alhamdulillah, charity has been given. Right? The duty is done. Right? Fard kifaya. It's all like, it's all okay. Till next week. Right? So when generic commands are given that like include everyone, what happens is that most people kind of tend to think it doesn't mean me. Right? It refers to someone else, refers to this person and that person. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to show importance here, what does he say? Say, I seek refuge. Right? It's me. Right? To show importance and to personalize the Qur'an. And that's what the Prophet used to do with the Qur'an. 
right? So he would read the Quran and he would personalize the message of the Quran. So in the famous hadith of Abu Bakr radiallahu an, when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he comes to him one day and he says to him, and it's a famous hadith, he says to him, Shayyabta ya Rasulullah, O Messenger of Allah, you've grown old, right? Literally means you have white hair, right? You have white hair. What did the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam reply? What made him grow old? Shayyabatni hudun wa akhawatuha. Surah Hud and its similar sisters, sisters, right? Similar surahs made me grow old. Surah Hud and similar surahs made me grow old. How does a surah of the Quran make you grow old? Right? It's an amazing hadith. If you think about this, right? You know, like most of us, when someone says to you, you look old, right? What do we say? Right? It's my wife, right? <laughs> my husband, right? My kids, my job. Like we, we give an explanation, right? We have, you know, we have. We have like a reason for it, right? And it's normally something to do with stress, right? Something to do with pressure and so on. But when the Prophet ﷺ is told the same thing, what does he say? It's Surah Hud. Surahs of the Qur'an have made me grow old. And the only way that happens is when you personalize the Qur'an. That Allah isn't speaking about someone else. Allah isn't speaking about so-and-so. And when Allah mentions the story of the people of Hud, it's not about just them. Right? Or when Allah mentions the believers or the disbelievers or the hypocrites or whoever else in the Quran, it's not those people over there, the third you know, person or the third um, context or whatever else, it is me, the first person. Right? Allah is referring to me. So when Allah speaks about believers, I am from them. And when Allah speaks about disbelievers, it's warning me, hey, don't be like that. Right? When Allah speaks about the hypocrites, it's like beware, don't be like that. When Allah speaks about the people of Jannah, imagine it's you in Jannah. And when Allah speaks about the fire, you imagine that it's you in the fire. And that's what the Prophet wasallam used to do. And that's why he had this amazing close connection to the Qur'an. Right? And that is one of the greatest benefits of studying tafsir. That you're better able to contemplate the Qur'an, personalize the message of the Qur'an. Right? So it's about me. And Allah Jalla. In the most beautiful way, right? It's implied, it's inferred. It's not something which Allah says openly, but it's mentioned throughout the Quran. When the Quran is told, or you're told to read the Quran or to say something in the Quran in the first person context. I seek refuge in Allah. Not we as Muslims, right? And the meaning is the same, because we, all of us as Muslims, have to seek refuge in Allah from shaitan and so on. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to highlight this issue to us. Right? That you personalize the message of the Quran. So going back to that like hadith, you know, that Surah Hud made the Prophet grow old. In the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, when the Prophet in Medina used to see rain clouds, and he would become upset and he would enter his house and come out of his house and he would he would become agitated. So Aisha radiallahu anha said, O Messenger of Allah, when the people see rain clouds, you know, especially in a place like Medina, desert, hot climate and so on. When the people see rain clouds or messenger of Allah, they rejoice. They become happy, rain's coming. But when you see those rain clouds, you become agitated. So the Prophet said, وسلم, because of Aisha, there were people who came before us, nations who passed, who when they saw rain clouds, they rejoiced, but within it was a terrible punishment for them. They were destroyed from rain clouds. And who's he referring to? Which people? The people of Ad, the people of Hud. So when the Prophet ﷺ is saying that Surah Hud made me grow old, it's not just a statement, 
he's living that, right? Because the punishment of Hud or the people of Hud is something which is very much alive with the Prophet even though those people were destroyed centuries before the coming of our Prophet right? And it's only because then Allah told him that your people won't be destroyed in that way. Right, this ummah won't be destroyed in a single disaster, a single punishment, a single destruction. And then the Prophet ﷺ understood that this wouldn't happen to his ummah. But look at how the Prophet ﷺ is personalizing the message. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives the command to say, then he personalizes it. I seek refuge. I seek refuge. And we, we discussed what it means to seek refuge when we did the isti'adha, to seek Allah's protection, to turn to Allah, to seek shelter from Allah, to seek refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, knowing and acknowledging that nothing in the heavens and the earth, nothing in existence has any power or might except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everything that's under the dominion of Allah, the control of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, nothing can benefit or harm except by the permission of Allah azza wa jal. So when you turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you say, I seek refuge. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, who do we seek refuge in? Birabbin nas. The Lord of mankind. And as we mentioned last week, in this surah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will describe himself with three names before he mentions what it is that we seek protection from. As opposed to Surah Falaq, where Allah mentions himself once, and then he mentions three dangers that we seek protection from. Here it's reversed, because of the danger of what we're seeking protection from, and the harm of Iblis and so on. So the first description that is given is that Allah is Rabb, the Lord of mankind, Rabb. And Rabb, the word Rabb, is mentioned nearly a thousand times in the Qur'an. Right? It's a very common word in the Qur'an, right? Many times Allah Azza wa Rabb and its derivatives, right? Rabbana, Rabbi, Rabb. You know, it's mentioned many times in the Qur'an. Right? Nearly a thousand times in the Qur'an. And what it actually refers to linguistically uh, in the Arabic language, it comes from uh, the same root word as tarbiyah. Right? You know, we often hear about tarbiyah, right? Your children, giving them tarbiyah, you know, whatever. And it's often um, translated, the word tarbiyah is often translated as upbringing, education, nourishing. You know, these are like different words and translations that are given to the word tarbiyah. The word tarbiyah has the same word, root word as the word rab. Right? Both of them come from the same root word. And what tarbiyah means, or rab rather, what it means, it has a number of meanings. Um, Ibn Faris was one of the lexicographers of the Arabic language. He has a dictionary in Arabic. He said that it comes down or comprises, revolves around three meanings. The first of them is to rectify. The first of them is to rectify. Right? So when you're, for example, with a child and you have a child and you're giving them upbringing, one of the main roles as a parent is to give them a good upbringing, right? to rectify them, right? to make sure that they have good character, good morals good etiquettes, right? good mannerisms. Right? You rectify the meaning in the sense that you give them a good upbringing. Right? That's the first meaning. The second meaning is that it refers to, uh, it refers to someone who continuously helps and nourishes. So it's not a one-minute thing, it's not a one-day thing, it's not a one-week thing. Like when you have a child, your tarbiyah doesn't just end when they reach you know, two or three or four or five. It's a continuous thing, right? 
to the extent that even when they're adults, you know, like our parents, you know, those of them that are living, may Allah preserve them, those of them that are passed away, may Allah have mercy upon them. Our parents, even when you're like, you know, 20 and 30, and you've got your own children, and you're a father, or you're a mother, you've got a husband or a wife, and so on, they're still trying to give you tarbiyah, right? They're still there telling you what to do and how to do it, right? And you're like, I'm a father now, right? I'm an adult, I have my own job. But for them, you're still a child. You could be a grandfather, right? And if your parents are still living, they'll probably tell you how to look after your grandchildren, right? This is what I did with my grandchildren, right? It's what you should do with your grandchildren, right? And so on. And that's because that is part of tarbiyah, right? Tarbiyah isn't something which just ends, right? It's not like, oh, they reach 10 now, that's it, go, right? It's something which is continuous, right? Continuously advising, trying to help, and so on. And number three, it is to merge, to bring together. Right? Part of tarbiyah is to bring together. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the word Rabb comes from that same root word as tarbiyah. Right? So Allah azza wa as the Lord of mankind, meaning what? Meaning that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who creates. And the one who provides sustenance and risk, right? provision. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who gives care and protection. And Allah Azza wa Jal is the one who feeds. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who safeguards. And Allah Azza wa all of those things that we need in order to live, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does that for us. And some of the scholars of tafsir, they said that one of the reasons why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned this particular name and the other names in Surah Nas, right, these particular names, is because many of the other attributes of Allah and the names of Allah come under them, right, come under these three names, Rabb, Malik, Ilah. Right? So Rabb refers to all of the nurturing aspect and caring aspect of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah's mercy, Allah's compassion, Allah's kindness, Allah's provision, Allah's sustenance, Allah's creation. Right? All of those things that we need in order to live and survive and exist, they come under the, the term Rabb. Right? And that's why in the Arabic language, right, uh, the word Rabb can be used for other than Allah. Rabbud Dar means the Lord of the manor, right? meaning the person who's in charge of the house. Right? In you know, English, it's very common, like in the olden days, right? you have, well, even today, you have lords, right? people who are lords, right? lord of an estate or lord of a county and so on. Because it means that these are the people who are looking after the affairs of that area, that place, that so on. Even in the story of Yusuf, السلام, when he's uh, in the house and, and you know, uh, the wife of Aziz, who's the wife of his master, she wants to seduce him. What does he say? Innahu Rabbi He is my Lord and he looked after me. Who's he referring to? His master, not Allah. He's referring to his master. I'm not going to do this with you, this haram, this zina, because that would be treacherous to my master, who's only ever done good to me. He's looked after me, he's cared for me. I have no reason to betray him, be treacherous towards him. Innahu Rabbi Ahsan And he calls him my Lord. Not in the sense that he's Allah, but in the linguistic sense. Because Rabb comes from that same word as Tarbiya, someone who cares and nourishes. And that's why we said it's not something which is limited to children, right? Or a child, or up to the age of 18, or puberty, or anything else. It is something which continues even into adulthood. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes himself as Rabb. He is Rabbun Nas, right? Or Birabbin Nas, right? With the Lord of mankind. And likewise, Allah begins with the Rabb from all of those names because it is the most generic, right? It refers to the most general names and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ Right, nas. Nas means um, mankind, right, or humankind, right, mankind. And it comes in the Arabic word, its root word also um, comes back to uh, uns, right? And uns in the Arabic language means to seek consolation, right, to console. And that's because some of the scholars said one of the things that we need as humans is social interaction, right? As humans, we're very social beings, right? So even you know, like the most reclusive of people still need to interact and still need to have some kind of a social setting around them, right? Uh, you know, even the Bedouin Arabs who are nomads and so on, but they still have their families around them, right? They still have their own family unit surrounding them. And even they would come into the city of Medina or Mecca or wherever else, and they would mix with the people to a certain extent. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes us as nas, right? Mankind. Birabbin nas. Why does Allah azza wa jal describe us, or why does Allah azza wa jal specify himself as being the Lord of mankind only? Isn't Allah the Lord of the jinn and the Lord of uh, you know, the angels? and the Lord of the heavens, and the Lord of the earth, and so on. Right? In Surah Fatiha, how does Allah describe himself? Birabbil, uh, Rabbil, or Rabbul Alameen. Right? The Lord of all that exists. Alameen is everything besides Allah. Everything in existence besides Allah comes under Alameen. But in this surah, Allah doesn't say, قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ Allah says, بِرَبِّ nas. Why? Sorry? Okay, because of the danger, right? The danger that's being spoken of is shaitan, and shaitan's main enemy is who? His target is mankind. Also, could it be that they from regards to whispering of Nas, Okay, so um, from the whisperings that are described in this surah are the whisperings of people as well, of humans. Right? So Allah is saying, seek protection in the Lord of humans against the evil of some humans. Right? Okay. Also, because it is a way of honoring humankind, mankind. Right? A way of honoring. So when Allah calls himself the Lord of mankind, it is to honor and elevate their status. Right? Um, as Allah says in the Quran, وَلَقَدْ كَرَّمْنَا بَنِي آدَمْ We have honored the children of Adam. Right? وَحَمَلْنَاهُمْ فِي الْبَرِّ وَالْبَحْرُ We carry them on land and sea. وَفَضَّلْنَاهُمْ عَلَى كَثِيرٍ مِمَّنْ خَلَقْنَا تَفْضِيلًا And we gave them preference, superiority, over much of that which we created. Right? Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, he has a very nice statement concerning um, the prostration of the angels to Adam, alayhi salam. So when the angels are commanded to prostrate before Adam, alayhi salam, he asks the question, are therefore humans better than angels or angels better than humans? Right? Because Allah commanded the angels to prostrate before the human, right? before Adam salam. And he says that when the humans are honorable and pious and believers in Allah and strong in their iman, they reach a level higher than the angels. They reach a level higher than the angels. And that's because you know, many narrations from them, Adam salam. 
they have to prostrate to him. Right? From them is that there was a time or there was a place in the Islam Mi'raj where Jibreel said to the Prophet, even I cannot go beyond this point, right? The Sidratul Muntaha, only you can pass beyond this, right? And so on and so forth. Right? And there are other hadith, you know, when um, when the Prophet comes and, and he knocks on the gates of Jannah and he's told, I was the angel, the guardian says, I was commanded not to open this for anyone before you. Right? So these are extra virtues, right? Maqam al Mahmud, right? Only given to the Prophet وسلم, and so on and so forth. So the honorable believers, when they have taqwa and iman and they're strong in their faith and they're people who worship Allah and obey Allah, they can reach the heights of the angels, right? Like the Prophet said, وسلم, the one who is mahir bil Quran, right? proficient in the Quran and its recitation, ma'asafaratil kiram al barra. He is with the highest company of the noble angels. Right? That's a virtue for the people of the Qur'an because of their knowledge of the Qur'an and how close they are to the Qur'an and so on. And then he says, Ibn Taymiyyah, but the opposite is also true when a person disbelieves in Allah, is distanced from Allah, is negligent of Allah, disobeys Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they become worse than the lowest of creation. Because what does Allah say? In whom illa... They are like cattle, no rather they are more astray. Right? So you can reach the heights or you can go to the lowest depths. That's what Allah says in Surah Al-Teen. وَلَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي أَحْسَنِ تَقْوِيمِ We created mankind in the best of form. ثُمَّ رَدَدْنَاهُ أَسْفَلَ سَافِينَ And then we caused him to fall to the lowest of the law. So Allah created us in the best form, in the best shape. Allah gave us all of these blessings and Allah gave us all of these abilities that we have and everything that Allah bestowed upon us. But then what does Allah say? And then man falls to the lowest of the law. Not even low. Asfalu safinin, The lowest of the law. Except for those who have iman and they do righteous deeds. For them is a reward that has no limit. Right? And so Allah mentions this like often in the Quran. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes himself here as a Rabbin Nas, right? The Lord of mankind. Right? And that shows you that as one of the greatest ways of you know, like the word nas, because from its root word is to console, right? To be together, to help one another. That one of the greatest paths of coming closer to Allah and one of the greatest methods of overcoming shaitan and iblis and his traps is when we help one another, when we advise one another, right? As Allah says, Inna insana lafi khusr. Mankind is in loss. Illa amanu wa aminu salihat. And then, Except for those who believe those who do righteous deeds, and they advise one another upon the truth and with patience. When we help one another and we come close to one another, that is when our iman becomes stronger, and it's when we can overcome shaitan by being with one another. Right? That's why brotherhood has such an important place in this religion. And that's why in the hadith you know, of the companion who used to drink, and then he would get lashed, and then he would drink, and then he get flogged and lashed and so on. And he kept doing it because it was a weakness that he had. On one occasion when he was being punished, one of the companions made a remark and he said, this man never learns. Doesn't learn, right? He gets punished and he goes back to the same sin. He gets punished, goes back to the same sin. Doesn't learn. The Prophet said, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, to the man who made that remark, your brother was more in need of you now than this statement. Don't help shaitan overpower him. 
Don't help shaitan. He's already weak. He's committed a sin. He's weak. He needs people to remind him of Allah and bring him closer to Allah. Not people to help shaitan overpower him even more. He's down and you kick him even more. Right? Now he needed you to help him. And that is the beauty of our religion. Right? And that's why when you look at the companions, it is amazing that they had this ability that even sometimes when you would think, right? because this is what shaitan does. Shaitan comes and he sows discontent and sows confusion and doubt in the hearts of people. So in the hadith of, uh, of what's the companion? The companion who, uh, I forgot his name, subhanAllah. The companion who feared hypocrisy for himself. What's the hadith? Hamdal. When the Prophet ﷺ, uh, in the hadith of Hamdala, when he feels hypocrisy for himself, and Abu Bakr radiallahu anh sees him, and he says, what's wrong? What does Hamdala say? Nafaqa Hamdala. Hamdala has committed hypocrisy. What did Abu Bakr say? A'udhu billah, right? Get away from me. You're a hypocrite. I don't want to know you. He said, why, O Hamdala? How many of us have that approach now? When someone comes and they made a mistake, they committed a sin, maybe they did something wrong, and they're seeking help, how many of us are willing to understand why and how to help them as opposed to shunning them, right, and ostracizing them and excommunicating them because of what they've done? Why alhamdulillah? And then he explains, because when I'm with the Prophet wasallam and he speaks about Jannah and Jahannam and so on, my Iman becomes strong and I feel my Iman is so strong. But then when I leave him and I go back home and I'm busy with my day-to-day affairs, my Iman gets lower and weaker and I feel that that fluctuating state is a sign of hypocrisy. What does Abu Bakr say? I feel exactly the same way. If that's hypocrisy, I'm guilty. So let us go to the Prophet and ask. Why? Because that's how shaitan sows discontent. When someone does something wrong, or you see someone doing something and there's no explanation or nothing that you can understand, and you think bad of them, right? Like in the slander of Aisha radiallahu anha. Companion sees her, she's all alone, no one else to take her back to Medina. He says, come, I'll take you. Doesn't even speak to her. Makes her ride on the camel and just leads the camel back. But it starts rumors, right? And starts praying because people, and the Prophet ﷺ understood this. Because on one occasion when the Prophet ﷺ was in the masjid and one of his wife, Safiya, radiallahu anha, came. And the hadith, I think, is in Bukhari. She came to the Prophet ﷺ, to the masjid. She came and she spoke to him. And then the Prophet ﷺ wanted to make i'tikaf that night. So he decided to walk her home. Because it's night, right? There's no street lights, nothing in those days. Walk her back home. So as he was walking with her, and it's dark, no one can see, but he's obviously with a woman in the middle of the night, and he's walking outside. Two companions were walking the other way, and when they saw the Prophet ﷺ with the woman, they walked fast, right? They sped up. So the Prophet ﷺ said to them, slow down. It's only my wife, Sophia. Slow down. It's only my wife, Sophia. Now which companion is going to think evil of the Prophet ﷺ, or think that there's something amiss, or think there's something wrong? So the companion said, Oh Messenger of Allah, we didn't, we didn't like have any you know, doubts, we weren't saying anything. The Prophet ﷺ said, I know. But shaitan comes, and he sows discontent and doubt in the hearts of people. And that's why he said, this is Safiya. Because now there's no room for doubt, right? It's perfectly understandable, perfect explanation, no doubt. But if you leave it, then now there's a problem, right? Now shaitan comes and he sows the seed and he gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is a big problem that we have, right? No communication. 
when we see something wrong, you go and ask, right? As Umar radiallahu anhu is famous for doing, when he would hear something from the companions, something happens that he doesn't understand, come here, right? Why did you do this? What is it? Is it true? People used to come to Umar radiallahu anhu all the time from different lands and say, your governor, this companion, so-and-so, you made him governor, but this is what he does, right? And this is what he's done. And this is how he rules and governs and so on. So Umar radiallahu anhu would call that person, that companion, and these are companions like Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas and Abu Ubaidah and senior major companions of the Prophet about whom there is no doubt. Right? These are like people that the Prophet himself testified for that they would have Jannah. But he would call them and he would ask them for the explanation and he would understand to get both sides of the story. Right? And so this is something which our religion tells us. Right? Why? Because shaitan then comes and he sows those seeds of doubt and they ferment and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And before you know it, people have all sorts of doubts about other people. And so this is also from you know, like the, um, the, the, the wisdoms, and Allah knows best, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioning mankind, بِرَبِّ nas, right? Rather than everything that exists. Because the danger, the foremost danger for us is amongst ourselves, right? It's about us. Yes, shaitan comes and he plants the whisper and, and he plants the seed of doubt and so on. But often who fans that flame? It is other people. And that's why the word shaitan, right, shayateen, devils, refers to both humans and jinn. Right? It's a mistake to think that it only refers to the jinn. Allah Azza wa says, وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَا لِكُلِّ نَبِيٍّ شَيَاطِينَ الْجِنِّ وَالْإِنسِ Right? And thus we have made for every single prophet enemies, devils from humans and from mankind. Right? Humans and man. Both of them. And so shaitan will come and he will, and that's why, and we'll come on to this, but when Allah says in the final verse, there are people who sow those seeds of doubt and whisper, they can be humans or they can be jinn. From jinn and from men. Both of them. Right? And Allah mentions both. Why? Because the jinn, okay, that's like something that, we, you know, that we're, you know, we're told. But the human one is the one that sometimes is more apparent, easier to notice. Right? But sometimes we're more negligent of it because we don't know. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us and gives us the command, A'udhu, right? I seek refuge in Allah. 17 times in the Quran, 1-7, 17 times in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the isti'adha, to seek refuge and seek protection, right? And it's done in, in various contexts. 16 of the 17 are about seeking refuge in Allah, seeking Allah's protection and Allah's refuge, right? So for example, you know, like in Surah, um, Surah Al-Baqarah, in the story of Musa, you know, the people of the cow, the story of the cow, when uh, Musa salam says to the people, slaughter a cow, and they say to him, أَتَتَّخِذُنَا huzwa." Do you take us as a joke, right? Do you make fun of us? He says, billah. I seek refuge in Allah that I should be from the ignorant. Right? In the story of Yusuf and the wife of his master, the wife of Aziz, when she wants to seduce him, wants him to commit zina, what does he say? Allah. I seek refuge in Allah. 16 of the 17 times that refuge or seeking that protection is done from Allah, right? Seeking refuge and protection from Allah. On one occasion, it's seeking refuge and protection in other than Allah. Anyone know which one? Which surah? 
It's a surah that we've already mentioned actually. One of the five that began with Qul. Surah Jinn. Allah Azza wa says, وَأَنَّهُ كَانَ رِجَالٌ مِّنَ الْإِنسِ يَعُوذُونَ بِرِجَالٍ مِّنَ الْجِنِّ فَزَادُوهُمْ رَهَقًا And they used to be from amongst the humans, those who would seek the protection of the jinn, and it would only increase them in fear. Right? Ibn Kathir rahimahullah, and others, they say that it was the practice before Islam, and even now, it is still the practice, unfortunately, even amongst Muslims, some Muslims, to seek the protection of the jinn from the harm of the jinn. Right? To seek protection from the jinn. So in prehistoric, like pre-Islam, the days of Jahiliyyah, when the Arabs used to go into valleys, or when they would go into ruins, or when they would go into those places that they feared that they would be jinn, they would seek the protection of the jinn. And this is in Surah Jinn, it's the jinn relaying their story, right? It's them who are speaking. They say that there used to be people from humans, humans who used to seek refuge in us, the jinn, and it would only make them more afraid. Meaning who more more afraid? The humans, right? It would only increase them in fear, increase them, and make them more afraid, even though they're seeking protection from us. Right? That's the only time in the Quran that Allah Azza wa refers to this. And what does he refer to it as? As a form of shirk. Right? So 16 of the 17 times we're told, it's an issue of tawheed, turning back to Allah, seeking Allah's protection, seeking refuge in Allah Azza wa Allah's divine care and protection. On one occasion, Allah Azza wa mentions it in the context of shirk to show that that is also something that is done and it is a danger. Right? To seek Allah, other than Allah's protection and shelter and refuge in only that which Allah Azza wa can give, it is a type of shirk and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. And that's verse number one. And I think we should stop there. Okay, so inshallah, I think we'll, we'll pause there. If there's any questions, uh, we'll take them. Otherwise, we'll, we'll conclude. Off or on? Can you still hear me? It's off now. Can you hear me at the back? Can sisters all hear me? Sisters are saying just about. My voice isn't very loud naturally. Yeah. Well, there's an echo? Echo on this or echo on... Yeah. Can we do something about the acoustics? Okay. Yeah, I don't know. No question on that. Um, in regards to the Sahabi, Qiyo um, Sa'ad ibn Abada, it's men- mentioned that he passed away because the jinn killed him. Is, um, I think there was an incident with the jinn. Um, I think, uh, you know, the, I think there's the notion where I think possibly he illuminated in a hole and one of the jinn killed him. Um, I have to I have to go and check that I don't know from the top of my head I can't remember inshallah yeah. put it in the group and I'll check it yeah. any sisters have any questions no video feed I think they have technical issues Sorry, say that again. Um, 
Okay, so the question is, when you're giving tarbiyah to a child, should you be very clear in your intentions and your thoughts? Yes, I think so. Um, that that's something sensible, something which we should do, so that you don't give mixed messages, right? So, you know, like sometimes when it comes to parenting, we tell our children, you know, they should fear Allah and they should be mindful of Allah. And then we teach them to fear, you know, other things which are figments of the imagination. Sometimes we, we tell them to fear an uncle, right, or fear their grandfather or fear someone else. And we give them mixed messaging, right, in terms of this. And really what we should do is we should embed within them, especially when it comes to, like, the Islamic uh, part of the tarbiyah and the imani part of the tarbiyah, embed within their hearts that absolute love and reliance and trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, um, because that's where Iman flourishes, right? It's in the heart. Once you have that solid foundation and seed of Iman in the heart, that's where it flourishes from. Whereas if you just focus on the apparent stuff and just like, you know, the, the outward stuff, but it's not settled in the heart, then that's when, you know, like people will always struggle, be that children or be the adults, that's when they will always struggle. And Allah knows best. Any other questions? Yeah. Sorry, say that again? So you mentioned the front row tends to be reserved for those. That has to be, but it was a practice, like it was something in the sunnah, yeah. In which case, the instant that uh, we have um, talked from Rav Aziz's position, uh, would we be right to say that one of the Aziz had the proficiency in the Quran as well? Would it be right to say sorry? It wasn't Umar Ibn Al-Aziz. No. Umar radiallahu an was the, was the imam and Ubay radiallahu an was, um, was the companion who pulled that man back. But the man was Umar Ibn Al-Aziz didn't live in the time of Umar. Yeah, he came many years later. Yeah. Okay. And, and by the way, that point that, you know, even if that person is proficient, but if the imam has chosen certain people, and given, like in, you know, in the Haram in Mecca or Medina, like there's probably lots of people who are well versed in Quran, proficient, and so on. But the point is that those people have been given that duty, right? They've been appointed. Because otherwise, what happens is when you leave it open, and that's probably one of the reasons why we don't have it today, you know, will he turn up, won't he turn up, right? We don't know. Whereas those people, you know, they're going to be there, and that's why you give them that position, even though they may be other people, right? So necessarily, the Imam of the Haram isn't necessarily the most knowledgeable person in the Haram. There may be other people who are much more knowledgeable in terms of Qur'an and others. But those are the people that have been appointed, right? And so that's why the imam of the masjid, even if there is someone in the congregation who has more knowledge, right, is more well-versed in the Qur'an, right, has a greater knowledge of Islam, but that person is the appointed imam, he has more right to read the salah. Unless he gives it up and says to someone else, you take my position, he has more right. And the Prophet ﷺ told us that the man of the house has more right to lead salah in his house than anyone else. So even if you have a sheikh in your house as a guest, you have more right to the salah, to lead the salah in your house than that sheikh, right? Obviously, you know, considering that you know, you know how to lead the salah and so on, right? Given the basics. But you have more right, right? Because that is part of, you know, because that, and likewise the king or the emir or the khalifa has more right to lead the salah because he's the khalifa, right? And so that is like rights. So it's not necessarily about he's more knowledgeable. These are people that have been appointed and they've been given that responsibility. Okay, Jazakumullah khair, inshaAllah. We'll see you next week. Barakallah feekum. Sa'al bin Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.